today's sutta is called the Maha uh, Gosinga Sutta. Gosinga is a place. So this is the greater sutta uh, at Gosinga. And again, the reason I have chosen this sutta is just simply because it hasn't been done before. So I always reckon it's nice to do things that we haven't done before. You get a kind of very broad overview of the of the Dhamma, all the different aspects of Dhamma. And uh, sometimes there are certain suttas you tend to pass them over because you don't think that they're interesting or whatever. And then when you start to read them, you actually find out there's something interesting pretty much. It's pretty hard to find a sutta which is not interesting. And if it isn't interesting, very often it is because perhaps it is a later edition. Some, you know, Mr. Buddha said it, usually it's, it's usually quite interesting. Yeah. But if you read kind of uh, other things, then it might not be so interesting. Yeah. So this is how this sutta goes. And uh, as usual, we will uh, just go through it uh, uh, and stop at relevant places. And please, if you want to ask questions as we go along, please, please do so. Okay. Uh, greater discourse in uh, Gosenga. Thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the park of the Gosinga Sala tree wood, together with a number of very well-known elder disciples, the Venerable Sariputta, the Venerable Mahamogalana, the Venerable Mahakasapa, the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Revata, the Venerable Ananda, and other very well-known elder disciples. Right, so this is the cream of the disciples, right? I mean, here you have the collection of the best ones all packed together. So that already makes the discourse a bit interesting, right? You've got all the best disciples there, and together with the Buddha himself. Then, when it was evening, the Venerable Mahamogalana rose from meditation, went to the Venerable Mahakasapa, and said to him, Friend Kasapa, let us go to the Venerable Sariputta to listen to the Dhamma. Yes, friend, the Venerable Mahakasapa replied. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana, uh, the Venerable Mahakasapa, and the Venerable Anuruddha went to the Venerable Sariputta to listen to the Dhamma. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, I, I think this, this will come later on in the sutta, but basically he was a meditator, a secluded, very secluded monk. There isn't that much about him, as far as I know, in the suttas. As far as I can remember, he is not talked about that much. I think he was a Sakyan. I think he was part of the Sakyan clan. So I think he was a relative of the Buddha, if I remember correctly. But I'm a bit vague on the details, uh, unfortunately. But yeah. But we see later on. Later on, he will talk about his. Uh, you know, to every all his disciples will s will say something here, so we get a bit of a feel for who they are, etc. The Venerable Ananda saw them going to the Venerable Sariputta to listen to the Dhamma. Thereupon he went to the Venerable Revata and said to him, Friend Revata, those true men are going to the Venerable Sariputta to listen to the Dhamma. Let us also go to the Venerable Sariputta to listen to the Dhamma. Yes, friend, the Venerable Revata replied. And then the Venerable Revata and the Venerable Ananda went to the Venerable Sariputta to listen to the Dhamma. Very repetitive uh, so far. Uh, um, and again, you can see here, this of course is because of the oral tradition. So it's easier in an oral tradition to repeat things verbatim, right? Again and again in the same way, because that's, it's much easier than having to make small changes, adjust small things from you know, passage to passage. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. 
Um, no, not really. The reason we are here is to be able to ask questions like this. So it's wonderful. Please ask questions. Don't ever feel ignorant or feel any question is too simple or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it does not refer to the Buddha. These are the Buddha's. These are the Buddha's kind of main disciples. So uh, most people recognize. Most people have been around for a while. I should say will recognize these names quite quickly. Yeah. So the Buddha had two chief disciples. One was the Venerable Sariputta. Another one was the Venerable Mahamogalana. They were the two chief disciples, and they were distinguished in two different spheres. So Venerable Sariputta was the one who was chief in wisdom. And the Buddha would often say about him, if anybody else is going to turn the wheel of the Dhamma, in other words, going to keep propagating the Dhamma, Buddhism, he should do it if I'm not around. So he almost placed Venerable Sariputta on the same level as himself in terms of wisdom and understanding. And the other one is Venerable Mahamogalana, and he is the chief disciple. He was distinguished for his psychic powers. So he could do all kind of you know, wonderful and marvelous stuff through, through psychic powers. So these were the two, two chief disciples. And the other disciples here, you maybe quickly go through them as well, because um, you have a point, actually. We should actually probably have a look at these disciples. Uh, then there's Mahakasapa. Uh, and Mahakasapa, he came to prominence after the Buddha passed away. Uh, so after the Buddha passed away, they had what they call a council, which is not really a very good name. It's more like a, 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 a communal recitation. It would be a better uh, translation of the term. Sangiti is the Pali term. It literally means singing together or chanting together is what it means in Pali. Uh, so they had a communal recitation of the Dhamma that the Buddha had taught. And the idea there is they wanted to preserve the Dhamma after the Buddha passes away. They don't have any authority anymore. So they need somehow to preserve the Dhamma that has been taught. So they come together and chant it. And the presiding monk at that uh, um, recitation, communal recitation, was Venerable Mahakasapa. So he is very famous for that, and he was also quite famous for his austerities. We'll see that later on. So that's him. Then we have Venerable Anuruddha. Venerable Anuruddha was also one of the most famous disciples of the Buddha. He came from the Buddha's family, extended family. Uh, they were known as the Sakyans. The Sakyans were the small tribe in India at the time. Uh, they were part of a larger kingdom. They, these were the Sakyan people. They're called Sakyaputas, the son of the Sakyans, because they belonged to the Sakyan tribe. Uh, and he was famous for his, uh, what is known as the divine eye, which is like, if you like, maybe it would be called clairvoyance in the present day. You know, you could see like galaxies and, and other worlds and all kind of wonderful and marvelous stuff. Uh, so that was his um, uh, his claim to fame. And then there is Venerable Revata, which uh, uh, Hui Tong just mentioned, which I don't know that much about. And then Venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's uh, chief uh, uh, attendant. He was the attendant of, of the Buddha for the last 20 years of his life. And he was famous for his memory, because he had to memorize all the suttas that the Buddha gave. Uh, so at the, uh, at the communal recitation after the Buddha passed away, Venerable Mahakasapa, he was the one who was presiding over the council, uh, but Venerable Ananda was the one who recited all the discourses that the Buddha had given her. Okay, so this gives you a rough idea who they are. There is actually a book in the library here called The Great Disciples of the Buddha, uh, which, which has long chapters about all the, dis the, the main disciples of the Buddha, many, many more that I have mentioned right here. Uh, that's quite a nice, nice book, actually. A bit, bit of it is mythology and legend, but some of it is, ha may have a more historical basis. Yes? Yeah. 
is it true that uh, the Buddha exchanged rope with um, Venerable Mahakasapu and shared half of his diamond throne with him? Uh, shared half. I, I, I think the uh, the story of of uh, swapping robes, I think, is uh, maybe maybe correct. Uh -huh. That's found. Where is that found? In the Vinaya, I think, found in the Vinaya somewhere. Uh, can't remember now where it's found. Somewhere in the Vinaya, it is found. Uh, the one about uh, the, the diamond throne. No, that must, must be, be much later. There's nothing about the diamond throne anywhere in the suttas. Uh. Namely, his seat. Yeah. yeah, the seat that he used for his awakening, yeah. right? Uh, or, or whatever his seat is now come share half. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there is. Any, I don't think there's any kind of re reference to that, as, as far as I know, in the suttas anyway. Okay. That must be a more legendary mythological thing here. Okay, I mean, yeah. uh, to give you know, perhaps later credence yeah. and authority for him to preside over the uh, recitation. Right. Uh, yeah. But that's the, exactly that's what often happens, isn't it? You, you they have to be kind of given the authority, and that kind of you create a story to give them that authority. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. And, and is yeah. it true that uh, Venerable Anuruddha was blind? Uh, no, I don't know any any um, basis for that. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So he, he, his physical eyes are intact. Yeah, as far as I know. Uh, yeah, oh. yeah. Because from yeah. the tr Chinese tradition, we said that he, he was blind. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Because he was chided by the Buddha from the Chinese tradition. Uh -huh. uh, okay. He strove. Yeah. Okay. And then went blind because of his striving. Okay. And then the Buddha taught him the divine eyes. So he could see yes. through all the means. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, there's nothing about but that. That's why I want to yeah. know what is mythology yeah. and what is historical. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they are all going to the Buddha together, to, uh, sorry, to Venerable to hear the Dhamma. And an uh, interesting little phrase here, friend Revata, those true men, it says here, those true men are going to the Venerable Sariputta. And the uh, Pali word for that is uh, Sapurisa. And uh, Sapurisa means like, basically, means like a good man or a superior person, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily even mean a man, but a superior person. Uh, and this is how uh, I think uh, Venerable Bhikkhubodhi translates it uh, now. He calls it a superior person. Uh, and this basically, it is a synonym for the Aryans, those who have actually seen the Dhamma, those who have understood the uh, teachings directly. Sapurisa is, um, is the Pali word for that. Uh, Good, uh, the superior person is a, I think, is a good translation for that. Yeah. Okay, so they're all going, yeah. and uh, then what happens next? The venerable Sariputta saw the venerable Revata and the venerable Ananda coming in the distance, uh, and said to the venerable Ananda, "Let the venerable Ananda come. Welcome to the venerable Ananda, the blessed one's attendant, uh, who is always in the blessed one's presence." Friend Ananda, the Gosinga Sala tree wood is delightful. The night is moonlit. The Sala trees are all in blossom. The heavenly scent, uh, scents seem to be floating in the air. What kind of bhikkhu, friend Ananda, could illuminate the Gosinga Sala tree wood? Right? So here they're all coming, and it's obviously it's an inspiring night. I don't know if you have been out when it's moonlit. It doesn't really work so much in the city, but if you are in the forest or in the country when it's moonlit, it's very inspiring, right? You get this light, this kind of yellowish light, there's long shadows everywhere, and it's very kind of, it's a kind of magical feel to it when the moon comes out and it's absolutely full moon. 
and you, you know, it often gives you extra inspiration. And sometimes it makes you go a bit mad, right? That's when you have the werewolves and this kind of stuff uh, on the moonlit nights. Uh, so it has a kind of two sides to it. You get the bad inspiration or the good inspiration. Uh. But it's very, so it's very, you can see that this is obviously a very, uh, very uh, beautiful night. The sala trees are all in blossom, right? All the flowers coming out. Uh, and there's obviously a scent from these sala trees. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that would be like, but... Uh, so obviously a very nice and inspiring night. It's a ni- nice to talk about something inspiring. So he asks Ananda, what kind of monk would illuminate this sala tree wood? Uh, you know, what kind of would, would give extra kind of uh, 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 extra inspiration to this sala tree wood? What sort of person would that be? Here? So uh, yeah, it's always it's nice here how when the Bosariputta says, you know the. Ananda, who is the Blessed One's attendant, right? Uh, he was well known, Venerable Sariputta, for having this sense of gratitude to people. Uh, and there is a nice uh, sutta somewhere where um, uh, I think the Buddha asks, there's a, there's a man who comes and he wants to ordain. Uh, and he asks the monk, says, well, you know, should we ordain this monk? And the monk said, no, we shouldn't ordain him. You know, he has never done anything. You know, he's kind of <laughs> not a very nice character or whatever. <laughs> That's basically what they say. It's kind of strange. And then and then when Sariputta says, no, no, I remember one time he offered alms food to us, you know, he offered alms food on alms round. Uh, and uh, because of that, he should definitely be ordained. He did something kind. So when Sariputta, who is the wisest person in the Sangha, he also, of course, has the sense of gratitude, right? Uh, and he remembers these things. Uh, it's a very wholesome character, Venerable Sariputta. Another story with him is when he, uh, this is also in the suttas, when he goes out and his robe is falling off a little bit. And then there's a novice, right? The novice, maybe just 12 years old or something, a tiny little kind of whippersnapper. In her. <laughs> and then he says to Venerable Sariputta, who is this, one of the greatest monks, right, next to the Buddha himself, says, oh, you know, Venerable, your robe isn't properly put on. So obviously he has a bit of nerve, this, uh, this, little, uh, this little novice. And then Venerable Sariputta kind of, you know, changes his robes, puts it on nicely, and then he goes afterwards and says, thank you, teacher, to this novice, right? It's kind of, um, it's sort of amazing. Here, here is kind of this very wise person, but very, very humble and very, uh, has this be- beautiful uh, personal characteristics. And there is a sutta in the Yudra Nikaya where it says that uh, gratitude and thankfulness uh, is always a characteristic of a superior person, the Sapurisa. And lack of gratitude and lack of thankfulness uh, is always the characteristic of the inferior person. Uh, so very, very nice there. So he remembers this of Venerable Ananda. He is the Venerable, he's the Buddha's attendant, right? And he ha- obviously has a sense of gratitude about that. And he invites him specifically for that reason. Uh, so uh, he's then asking, what kind of monk would illuminate the uh, Gosinga Salawood? And he replies, here, friend Sariputta, Bhikkhu has learned much, remember, remembers what he has learned and consolidates what he has learned. Such teachings as are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, in which affirm a holy life that is utterly perfect and pure. Such teachings as these he has learned much of, remembered, mastered verbally, investigated with the mind, and penetrated well by view. 
and he teaches the Dhamma to the four assembly with well-rounded and coherent statements and phrases for the er eradication of the underlying tendencies. That kind of bhikkhu, in other words, that kind of monk, could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. So, uh, uh, of course, Ananda, Ananda here is talking really about his own strength, right? This is his strength, is the ability to remember all the teachings. And it's interesting, when, when they are asked about what kind of monk would illuminate the Sala wood, they basically talk about their own strengths, right? Does that sound strange? Does that sound kind of you know, self-centered, perhaps, or... or why are they talking about their own strengths? And I, I think it's simply the fact that, well, you know your own strengths and you know that these qualities are good, uh, that these are, you know, you, because you have seen it for yourself. Uh, it leads in the right direction. It leads to, you know, the, uh, uh, eventually to full awakening, etc., etc. So because you have direct experience with these things, I, I assume that is the reason why they talk about this. And of course, it, it, I cannot see that there is any, there cannot be any selfish motive behind this. Uh, but just to do with your uh, familiarity with these things. Eh? So he has learned much and remembers what he has learned, right? Such teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Basically the teachings of the Buddha, right? This particular phrase has many, can have many different meanings, but I think the main meaning is that the results of the practice is good in the beginning. Eh? In other words, it has a sense of removal of suffering and movement towards contentment and happiness in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, uh, very briefly. The right meaning and the right phrasing. Yeah. The phrasing is, uh, uh, the Buddha obviously very careful about how he phrases these teachings so that they can last a long time, and it is phrased in a coherent fashion, uh, and the right meaning. In other words, it goes towards, it moves towards something worthwhile. Uh, the end point, of course, being the end of suffering here. Yeah. And it is utterly perfect and pure. And this is really, I think, not the best translation. The Pali here is paripunna. Paripunna means complete. It is utterly complete. In other words, it doesn't lack anything. It has all the aspects necessary for taking you all the way to, to awakening. And it also is complete in a sense that it, the full path is there from the beginning to the end. I think that is a, is a better translation here. And such teaching as these, he has learned much of, remembered, mastered verbally, investigated with the mind, and penetrated well by view. I think this is one of those very important things that you see in many places in the suttas. And that is the fact that when you hear the Dhamma, it is not just about hearing it, but it's about reflecting on these things. What do they actually mean? You know, what, what, what does it actually pointing to? It's too easy to sit there, take it on board, and then just leave afterwards and kind of forget about it. Uh, but to really understand these things, they need to be reflected over, pondered upon, right, again and again. Uh, and as you do that, it starts to sink in what is going on, uh, right? Uh, it is not something that you should, it, it needs to be reflected on. Uh, uh, and then it says here, so you, ref you remember this, you... you um, master it verbally, investigate it with the mind, right? It's what reflection is all about. And eventually, when you keep on investigating and you keep on practicing accordingly, eventually you come to this thing which is called here, it's penetrated well by view. And penetrated well by view really means to understand the teachings 
directly, immediately, uh, through what you call the eye of wisdom, right? When you have a direct experience of these teachings. So that really means becoming an Arya, a noble one, a stream enter. That's really what it refers to, at least in the highest sense. Uh, perhaps it also refers to other things in a slightly lower sense. So I, th I think this is a very, a very important thing, this idea that we, you need to reflect on these things. What does it mean? Uh, so what kind of teachings should you reflect on? Because uh, sometimes the problem is that there, you, know, you have this, you know, this here is, is only about a thousand pages, uh, 150 suttas, there's enough here probably for a lifetime of reflection, but then this is only one collection, right? Uh, then you've got three more. Uh, so you, know, you can, you can maybe, maybe be too scattered by reflecting on too many different things, that's one possibility. Uh, so sometimes you need to choose carefully what kind of Dhamma you want to reflect on. Uh, and of course the things that you should reflect on are those things that you need in your life. So what is it that you need to make progress on the path? Uh, well, to understand that, you have to know yourself fairly well. How well is your meditation going? How well is your wisdom going? How well are all these factors going? Uh, and if you are the person like most people, who you know, use meditation to find a little bit of peace and satisfaction, who doesn't have very profound stillness and samadhi and all these kind of things. I mean, how many people have really, really profound samadhi? You know, it's, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything. But it, it's, not, it's not that common, let's face it. It's, it's, it's rare, right? So for the vast majority of people, you need to investigate those, those things that lead you to meditation, that lead you to improving your meditation, to go deeper, to get it more profound. That is what we mostly need to do. And um, so what is, what are those things that we need to investigate to uh, improve our meditation? Basically, it's virtue, right? Sila. It is all these things about avoiding the bad, doing the good, thinking the right way, avoiding thinking in the bad way. And one way that uh, sila, the most perhaps comprehensive way that sila is explained in the suttas uh, is what is known as the dasa kusla kamapata, the ten pathways of wholesome actions. Uh, and this is found in, in Majjhimanikaya in several places. Uh, I read out one of the suttas a few weeks ago called the, what's it called again now? The Salayaka Sutta, I think. Yes, Salayaka Sutta. It talks about these ten courses of wholesome action or ten courses of unwholesome action. And that is in many ways the broadest and most profound exposition of virtue in the suttas. So for most people, I would say that is a very good place to start your investigation. Just investigate that. Think about what that means to be virtuous. In the English language, to be virtuous often means avoiding the bad stuff. Or, or morality means avoiding the bad stuff. In Pali, the word sila means conduct in a much broader sense. Avoiding the bad, doing the good. Not thinking the bad, but thinking the good, right? It's very, very broad. It's about your whole character, development of your whole personality. So uh, this is, you know, and look at those things. It's, it's beautiful stuff, and it's very profound. There's so much information just in those ten pathways of wholesome actions. And by working, just looking at that, investigating that, and making a very solid foundation for yourself on the Buddhist path, that will be the foundation that takes you into meditation later on. Okay. So that is what Venerable Ananda has to say. And of please, yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, yeah. Yes, I mean, as I understand this, mm. this has to be strictly monk's talk. No layman can be present. Is that right? 
in, in this particular case? Yeah. Uh, not really, because uh, very, I think very often the Buddha would have spoken to, uh, you know, he was spoken to assemblies, uh, and uh-huh. he would have spoken that in the assemblies would have been monks and lay people present. Mm-hmm. Perhaps what you're talking about is that monks rule that we cannot teach to lay people. Is that, is that what you're thinking no, of? No, or? no, no, no. no? Because, because he, he, no? he's saying he's sharing his attainment. Ah, uh, uh, well, he's not really sharing a attainment. He's just saying he's teaching Dhamma, right? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm yeah. I think he's just. I think uh, he's just. Uh, yeah. I, I suppose a layman would have loved to be present. Well, yeah. And, they, and by inference, they, then they understand. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I, I I don't think there were. They may, they may not have been in the layman present in this particular case because it seems to be a very yeah, kind yeah, of monastic yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, that, that was why I'm yeah. asking. Yeah. But I don't think that he's really sharing his attainments. I think he's just teaching Dhamma in a general sense. There's a difference. There's a difference there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. But by I mean by, by any inference, any one of us here by inference knows that he's talking about what he knows. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's always like that, right? I mean, you know, you, you cannot talk. To, you cannot really speak without people inferring in, inferring things about what you're saying. I mean, if somebody talks about the you know the samadhi and the, just from the way they talk, you will have some idea whether they have experienced it or not. You know, when I listen to Ajahn Brahm talk, I don't have any doubt that he has experience of samadhi. You know, and it's, it's very obvious. I've been with him for 20 years. I have basically no doubt whatsoever. And you know that simply not because he says that he has these things, but because of how he talks about it. Yeah, uh, and uh, so, but that, of course, that's impossible to avoid. That this, these kind of inferences are you you have to. Ah, uh, so, so you but have to have it's okay to infer, right? <laughs> okay to hint him in. <laughs> no, I don't think you should hint. You no, should, no, it's not about yeah. hinting. It's just yeah. that, I mean, any yeah. any average intelligence intelligent yeah. person looking at this knows, knows clearly what this is referring to. Sure, but that, that's your inference. Yeah, it's yeah, not the, the person speaking doesn't, and it's not uh-huh. doing anything wrong, right? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next person. When this was said, the Venerable Sariputta addressed the Venerable Revata thus. Friend Revata, the Venerable Ananda has spoken according to his own inspiration. Uh, Patibana, that means like according to his own, uh, as it occurs to you, and kind of, you know, just speaking out. Uh, now we ask the Venerable Revata, Friend Revata, the Gosinga Sala tree wood is delightful. Uh, the night is moonlit, the Sala trees are all in blossom, the heavenly scents seem to be floating in the air. What kind of bhikkhu, friend Revata, bhikkhu is a monk, right, could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood? Here, friend Sariputta, a bhikkhu delights in solitary meditation and takes delight in solitary meditation. He is devoted to internal serenity of mind, does not neglect meditation, possesses insight and dwells in empty huts. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. So uh, this is what he was famous for, for being a meditator, right? Delighting in solitude and all these kind of things. And this is often used together in the suttas. The idea of delighting in solitude is equivalent to delighting in meditation, basically. Uh, solitude is pati salana uh, in, in Pali. And you always see in the suttas is always withdrawing into patisalana is equivalent to the practice of samadhi. These two are just two sides of the same coin. Eh? 
And one of the interesting things here that comes out here is that uh, uh, you will see that most of these terms are about samadhi, right? Solitary practice, delighting in meditation, devoted to internal serenity of mind. This is uh, samatha, right? Serenity here is samatha. Does not neglect meditation. Uh, this is anirakata jhana. So this is basically jhana. Meditation here is jhana, right? Uh, it's a bit unfortunate that this is translated in this way because you would have no idea that what is meant here is actually the jhana. But, that, but basically it means not neglecting jhana, is what it means. So everything here is about meditation practice. The last one, dwelling in empty huts, is also about that. It's about solitude, dwelling for yourself. So everything is about, about that. And then you have one, one in there, one kind of thing which is, uh, stands out a little bit, and this is possessing insight, right? Among all these terms, which means samatha, calm, jhana, samadhi, there is insight in there. And again, it's one of those fascinating things that in the suttas, there isn't that distinction where you have like samatha on one side and vipassana on the other side, and these two are separated out as if they are completely separate ideas. They are all usually spoken of together, right? Samatha and vipassana go together. Where there is samatha, there is vipassana. Where there is vipassana, there is samatha. These things cannot be pulled apart from each other. And this is what you see here again. You have both at the same time. This is also two sides of the same coin. If you, have, if you are peaceful, you have vipassana. If you have vipassana, you are peaceful. You cannot separate these things. It's such an important thing to understand. And, and I think I, I like, you know, instead of translating vipassana as insight, I think a nice translation for vipassana is clear seeing because insight is a bit like wisdom, it's like panya. But uh, insight is something, or, or vipassana comes before panya. It was what builds up the panya, the, the wisdom. So it is the clear seeing. When you see things clearly, right? You see it in terms of impermanence, of suffering. This is what clear seeing is all about. And when you are calm, you see clearly. I'm sure you all know that to some extent. When you're calm and peaceful, you see things clearly. When you see things clearly, you're calm and peaceful, right? Two sides of the same coin. So uh, again, you know, one of the most common, one of the most common compounds in the suttas, you know, compounds, two words stuck together, is samatha vipassana. Those two words are always stuck together. They, are, they come together in, as one thing. In other words, they're not really separated, right? Samatha vipassana apart from each other. Okay, so that, this is what uh, he uh, enjoys, the, um, uh, or he thinks that that kind of bhikkhu would illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. Uh, that is Venerable Revata. When this was said, the Venerable Sariputta addressed the Venerable Anuruddha thus, Friend Anuruddha, the Venerable Revata has spoken according to his own inspiration. Now we ask the venerable Anuruddha, friend Anuruddha, the Gosinga Salatri wood is delightful, etc. The blossom, the moon is shining, all these things. What kind of bhikkhu, friend Anuruddha, could illuminate this Gosinga Salatri wood? Here, friend Sariputta, with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, a bhikkhu surveys a thousand worlds. Just as a man with good sight, when he has ascend, ascended to the upper 
palace chamber might survey a thousand wheel rims, so too with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human. A bhikkhu surveys a thousand worlds. That kind of bhikkhu uh, could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. So this is all this is the divine eye. This is about being able to see things with your mind, quite literally, not with the physical eye, but with the mind. So it's almost like you send your mind out into the cosmos, right? And you see all these things that otherwise you would not be able to see. And it's interesting here the you know the simile that he uses. The simile he uses is a simile of a wheel wheel rim, right? A wheel rim. And um uh, some of the this sutta actually has a few parallels in Chinese, and the similes there are different. But I like the simile in the Pali, and I think perhaps this might be original, uh, because the simile, of course, of the wheel rim. Uh, if we, what do we mean by a thousand worlds? Uh, and if you know how this is described other places in the suttas, uh, it seems very likely that what it means it refers to perhaps solar systems, right? And a solar system is a bit like a wheel, right? It has a center, and then you have the planets or whatever revolving around it. That's one possibility. Another possibility is perhaps it could refer to a galaxy. A galaxy also, you know, the, the spiral galaxies, they look a bit like wheels, right? And uh, they, have a, have a, they have a center, and they kind of spiral outwards. A similar kind of thing, yeah. So uh, I, I think this might, might very well be what is meant. It's a bit speculative. It's very, it's very hard to really pin it down. Uh, uh, but that certainly fits with the, uh, with the simile that he uses here, uh, this idea that he actually sees other worlds out there. Uh, and there are other suttas in the Nikayas which kind of point in a similar kind of direction. Uh, there is one place in the Anguttara Nikaya where uh, the Buddha talks about surveying uh, not a thousand worlds, but a billion, a billion worlds. And it says that each one of those worlds, it has a sun, moon, an earth, right? A Jambudipa with the continents and the oceans, that kind of thing. And the different heavenly realms. So that seems very much to correspond to what we call a solar system, right? The sun and the planets around it. A very, very similar idea. And so it is one of those, I think, very fascinating things about the suttas is that the Buddha seemed to have some kind of insight into the, the larger cosmos, basically. There are other places where it talks about the, uh, the evolution and the dissolution of the world, right, or the world systems. And it doesn't, it's very hard to know whether this is equivalent to the Big Bang and perhaps you know, the Big Crunch afterwards. You, you can just speculate. But that's what it seems like. It, things that happen over vast, vast time spans uh, and is called evolution and dissolution, it is very possible that it refers precisely to that. Uh, right? It's astonishing. Another sutta where the, where the Buddha says that you know, after a long, long, long period of time, the whole earth will burn up because the heat from the sun, actually it says many suns, uh, will be so strong that the earth burns up. And now we know that this actually is the case, right? But the, nobody actually knew that in those days from, from physics, that this is what was going to happen. And it is one of those amazing things that how these suttas two and a half thousand years ago actually seem to be saying things which, are, which fit quite well with modern uh, physics and modern astronomy. To, to me, actually, it's quite mind-boggling how that is possible. Uh, and... Uh, there are no other scriptures, ancient scripture of that kind, which has these kind of descriptions in them, as far as I, I am aware. Uh, 
So, uh, yeah. Anyway, just to just kind of, um, uh, yeah. And of course, this is perhaps possible if you have this kind of, you know, vast divine eye and you can see into the past by remembering your past life. Perhaps it is possible to see these kind of things directly for yourself. Uh, yes? Contractions and expansion did Buddha see until he got he felt he was had, had enough of it. I, I, I thought it was more than three. Yeah, I think there's some place it says ninety. Uh, 90. I think it says somewhere. Uh, but um, yeah. Mm. And, and I said in, in this in this expansionary phase there were what, how many six six Buddha going to be six Buddha five five so far. Yeah, what is it? What is it now again? It is—is is it uh, five altogether? I think. Yeah. yeah. And two in previous previous eons, so five to altogether in this one, I think. Yeah. 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 So I think that's 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 what what is yeah. Yeah. But it's all a bit legendary, all that kind of. You know, oh, is that, that, is that legendary? Well, particularly the future Buddha, the Maitreya, that is really legendary stuff. It only occurs in one sutta, uh-huh. and that sutta in. In that particular sutta, which has a parallel in Chinese, it does not mention Maitreya. Oh. So that is, uh, I mean, you know, the idea that there will be future Buddhas, I think, is fairly uh, obvious. You know, that's kind of one of the, how the Dharma works in a sense, that there will always be future Buddhas. Yeah, yeah. But the specific mentioning of a specific Buddha, that's very legendary here. I see. I, I would say, yeah. So the, the, yeah. the existing, the, the five paths, the five, including our own Buddha, is that, that is in the sutta. Um... Yes, I wouldn't say it's a very, very strongly kind of attested thing. It's not a very important teaching. Uh, there are, I mean, maybe the meeting with Kasapa Buddha in the past life from the Gatikara Sutta might be one of the strongest ones. Uh, some of the other stuff, I would say, is a bit more. Uh, yeah, it's not so important. I wouldn't, I wouldn't place too much emphasis on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so that is uh, his strength, is the uh, divine eye. So somebody seeing all these world systems out there. Uh, and of course, remember that behind this, you know, behind this idea of seeing all these world systems is, of course, a very high degree of development of the mind. It's only a very pure mind and a mind which has very, is very powerful through the development of very deep stillness in samadhi which is able to do this so there's a lot there's something very beautiful going on here at the same time it's not just kind of this seeing all this world and that's that's it there's something much more going on behind that so please keep that in mind Would you a challenge to modern science yeah yeah maybe we can get some maybe we could, maybe they should actually employ some monks to kind of see this world that would be that would be cool wouldn't it and they say actually look in this direction oh, yeah, i can't yeah, help but yeah. to think that this is a challenge to modern science yeah 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 i don't think it's a challenge in the sense that it's not I mean, di- yeah. di- different necessarily yeah but uh, it, it might be useful yeah. might, might, might be, see yeah. much much more clearly i mean uh, in terms of results yeah yeah yeah, and they can maybe point them to interesting things or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how many monks these days do this kind of stuff, but anyway, <laughs> or nuns or anyone for that matter. But yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. When this was said, the Venerable Sariputta addressed the Venerable Mahakasapa thus. Friend Kasapa, the Venerable Anuruddha, has spoken according to his own inspiration. Now we ask the Venerable Mahakasapa, Friend Kasapa, the Gosinga 
sultry wood is delightful. What kind of bhikkhu, friend Kasapa, could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood? Here, friend Sariputta, a bhikkhu, is a forest dweller himself and speaks in praise of forest dwelling. He is an alms food eater himself and speaks in praise of eating alms food. He is a refuse rag wearer himself and speaks in praise of wearing refuse rag robes. He is a triple robe wearer himself and speaks in praise of wearing the triple robe. He has few wishes himself and speaks in praise of fewness of wishes. He is content himself and speaks in praise of contentment. He is secluded himself and speaks in praise of seclusion. He is aloof from society himself and speaks in praise of aloofness from society. He is energetic himself and speaks in praise of arousing energy. He has attained to virtue himself and speaks in praise of the attainment of virtue. He has attained samadhi himself and speaks in praise of the attainment of samadhi. He called concentration, stillness perhaps. He has attained to wisdom himself and speaks in praise of the attainment of wisdom. He has attained the deliver, deliverance himself, freedom uh, himself and speaks in praise of the attainment of freedom. He has attained to the knowledge and vision of freedom, deliverance himself, and speaks in praise of the attainment of the knowledge and vision of deliverance. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. So wow, that's a bit of a list there. You have this really long list of uh, qualities that are mentioned in here. And um, sorry. And um, uh, of course, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Mahakasapa, he was famous for uh, his, particularly for being quite ascetic. I think I may have mentioned that before. That was one of the things that he was quite well known for. So that is why you see here at the beginning of this list, you see these more or less ascetic practices, practices that he's doing. Living in the forest, right? Eating alms food. That means usually going on arms round, not going to houses and to invitations, that sort of thing. Yeah. He wears refuse, uh, refuse rag wearer. In other words, you find cloth on the ground somewhere, discarded cloth, you go to the charnel ground, you take the, uh, you take the um, cloth off the corpse, right? Uh, there's a good story, about, <laughs> good story about that in the suttas. <laughs> not, not in the suttas, in the vinaya. <laughs> There is a there's a monk who does lives just like this. He lives he he you know he takes the a cloth off the corpses on the charnel ground. The charnel ground is where you know they chuck out the corpse and it kind of lies there and rots. Right, that's the charnel ground. Uh, sometimes you might burn the corpse, and uh, sometimes if the corpse is quite fresh, the cloth might still be good. Right, uh, so you go and you take the cloth off the off this corpse. Right, and then you make it into a robe or whatever. But if the corpse is very fresh, right. Uh, Maybe the consciousness hasn't left yet. So if you take the cloth off, the corpse, which is so fresh, the consciousness still is attached. Maybe the corpse gets upset, right? Maybe it doesn't like it. <laughs> and this is the story in the Vinaya. The story in the Vinaya is that you go to this corpse and you, he takes the cloth off, right? And when he takes the cloth off, the corpse says, don't take the cloth off my body. And as he walks away, the, the corpse rises up and he walks behind him, right? And this monk hurries off, you know, to get away from this corpse. It's pretty scary if a corpse comes walking behind you. 
and then he you know, kind of rushes into his kuti, and then when he rushes into his kuti, the corpse kind of falls flat you know, outside his kuti. Yeah. And then the, after that, the, uh, according to the story, the Buddha lays down a, a rule that uh, you're not supposed to take cloth off a corpse that is too fresh. It shouldn't be too fresh, because then you fall into this danger. It's ownership, right? If you are still alive, you think this is my clothes. It's like if I, you know, went to, if you know, if you come to me and, and said, oh, I'd like some piece of your robe, I wouldn't be too happy. And it's the same kind of same kind of thing, right? So, uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice story. I don't know if it's true. It's in the one of the um, kind of smaller sections in the vineyard somewhere, uh, but uh, perhaps it is true. It's kind of it's kind of it's a neat neat story. I like that one. Uh, yes. In terms of um, veneer like that, yeah. um, you know, the, the monks are very well spread out during the time of Buddha. So yeah. in the Anga region and so on, yeah. Buddha may be at Savati or maybe in the Rajagaha or whatever. Yeah. And, and when he enacted a, 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 a new veneer, yeah. so how is that propagated to... I, it would be propagated slowly, you know, because... So there will be in, for a period whereby... Yeah. Some monks will not be observing those it, it, That's true. That could well be the case. And then gradually it will kind of spread out. Because one of the things about the monks and nuns in those days, they would move around quite a bit. So because they would move around from one area to another one, it wouldn't be that long before you know, these things would spread around from one community to another one. So it would probably happen fairly fast because of all the movement of the monastics. Probably faster than you, you, you think, probably. Yeah. But yes, it's true. There would probably be a time when uh, you know people might still break the rule uh, until actually it was new valid. Yeah, that's true. And they might be by themselves for months on end. Uh, yeah. So, so I wonder if to solve that inconvenience, whether this yeah. is, is by is is by mind communication. <laughs> I I don't think so. I think the main communication is the Patimokkha recitation. And that every fortnight you're supposed to go to the Patimokkha. Even if you're forest dweller, yeah, you should ideally go to a community where there is the recitation of the Patimokkha. And because these are communities, you know, that's often where uh, information would come in fairly fast from the outside because you are a community in a certain place. So, so I suspect that the system is such it would actually happen fairly fast. Yeah. I don't think mind-to-mind communication probably is the most... most yeah, I don't think that's what, how they would do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I would yeah. like to have a more physical explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you have all these ascetic practices uh, that he is uh, is doing, uh, and of course not just that, but you have all these other uh, beautiful qualities here: the fewness of wishes, the contentment, seclusion, and then towards the end, all the uh, attainments that you require to reach full awakening. Right, and it ends with the attainment of knowledge and vision of deliverance. And what that means is just that when you attain awakening in Buddhism, it's not something that, you know, you, am I awakened, am I not? You know, it's not, it doesn't work like that. You know that you have reached awakening, right? You know this is the end of rebirth. So there is a knowledge there. The knowledge of awakening always comes with awakening itself. These things are two sides, again, of the same coin. And one of the things you will notice with this list as well, which is quite nice, is that you practice it and you speak in praise of these things, right? So this is kind of an aspect of virtue in Buddhism, is that you not only do you do them yourself, but you also speak in praise of these things. You are kind and you speak in praise of kindness, right? And of course, 
it, the basic thing, of course, is to do the practice yourself, but you actually improve your virtue by also teaching these things. Teaching is an important part of the, uh, of the monastic or any Buddhist life, really. That's part of it. And, of course, just teaching without having done the practice, of course, that doesn't really work either. So these two things complement each other very nicely. Uh, one of the uh, things which I, I think is um, a kind of important to keep in mind as well, here there is a bit of praise of these ascetic practices. There are also other ascetic practices that are more severe than this. Uh, but one of the things about the ascetic practices is that they are often more talked about in later literature uh, and not so emphasized in the suttas. Uh, the sutta emphasis is always about the middle way, right? Uh, not torturing yourself, not indulging in sensuality, nor torturing yourself. It's this middle way where the body kind of disappears. The body is unimportant. But then later on in, the, uh, in later literature, for example, in the Visuddhimagga uh, especially, they talk in great detail about ascetic practices, much more about them, and they seem to praise them and lift them up much more. Uh, and it's kind of strange. The Buddha doesn't really talk about it, but later on, uh, and I think, there, I think maybe there is, a, there is a kind of a tendency in the human mind to move towards ascetic practices. It seems very impressive, right, when somebody's really ascetic, uh, and uh, so we, we kind of there's a, tends to be a movement that way. Uh, but actually, uh, the real progress on the path is when you find that right middle way uh, between the two extremes. Uh. Yes? There is some basis for that. There are some suttas where the Mahakasapa says, uh, I think it's in the Kasapa Sangyutta, in the Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, where he says that I, you know, I still practice the forest dwelling, I still practice the wearing of the triple robe, these things. Uh, and he says, why? Well, because I have compa compassion for later generations. That's one of the main reasons. Uh, in other words, you set the example, right? Uh, and when you set the example, later generations will think, wow, these, these really good monks from the past, they did this, I should do it too. Uh, and of course, there are some of these aesthetic practices which are quite okay because they're not really all that ascetic. Like dwelling in the forest is okay if you have a reasonable nice cutie. Wearing you know, rag robe is not a very difficult thing to do. As long as it covers your body and keeps you warm, it's okay. It just looks a bit ugly or whatever, but, but so what? You know? Does it lie down? Well, that is another one. That, that is an, an ascetic practice you don't really see in the suttas at all. It's mentioned in a couple of places. Uh, but that is much more ascetic, right? Uh, in, a, in a very different way. You never actually lie down, you always sit up. And that is where I would say you very quickly you move into the territory of torturing yourself if you never, never, never lie down. And I know some monks who have done that and they basically destroy their meditation as a consequence. Oh. So you have to be very, very careful of these kind of practices. So, so in other words, it seems, it, it seems that he's, he's not, when he talks about the ascetic uh, practice yeah. in that context, he's not talking about the 13. No, the 13 Dutangas, that, that is very much a commentarial thing yeah, that you find in the Vasudhimaga. Uh, it's much, yeah, very much so. Huh? Yeah. Okay, anyway, so that is Mahakasapa. And uh, uh, so that is um, what he has to say. And then uh, move on, on to the next one. When this was said, the Venerable Sariputta addressed the Venerable Mahamogalana. 
Friend Mogalana, the Venerable Mahakasapa, has spoken according to his own inspiration. Now we ask the Venerable Mahamogalana, Friend Mogalana, the Gosinga Sala tree wood is delightful, etc. What kind of monk, Friend Mogalana, would illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood? Here, friend Sariputta, two monks engage in talk on the higher Dhamma, and they question each other, and each being questioned by the other answers without foundering, and the talk rolls on in accordance with the Dhamma. That kind of bhikkhu uh, could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. So here you have uh, the Venerable Mahamogalana talking about uh, Dhamma discussion really as being the kind of thing which inspires him. And this is quite unusual, right? Usually Mahamogalana, when we talk about him, usually we're talking about psychic powers. I'll be with you in a second. Usually we talk about uh, psychic powers. That is what he is famous for. But here he is he's famous for something else, for discussing the Dhamma. And uh, the interesting thing here is that the parallel to these suttas in the Chinese tradition, uh, they actually talk about Mahamogalana here, that what he talks about is psychic powers. Uh, so the question then is, well, which one is more original? And it is possible that the uh, Chinese version might be more original because it is more natural to talk about Mahamogalana in that connection. Uh, but it's also possible that uh, uh, this is more original. Uh, and the reason for that is because it is an unusual thing, right? You don't really expect that. And unusual things don't normally creep in. Normally, it is the standard things that tend to creep into the suttas. And the unusual things tend not to creep in. And this is a, a principle in, uh, in what they call, you know, when, they, when, they, when you read this text and you want to find out what is the real thing, it is a principle that is used to decide that kind of issues. And this is called the principle of the more difficult or the more unusual reading is more likely to be true. And this is what they used in biblical studies. And in biblical studies, they had many different versions of the Bible, and they had to decide, well, which one is right, which one is wrong, which passage can we trust, which can't we trust. And they these are the principles that were used to decide in uh, biblical studies what was the more original reading. Uh, they call the principle of the more unusual reading is more likely to be true because unusual readings, they don't creep in, right? Uh, they are either there from the beginning and then they tend to be standardized, uh, but the other way around is more unlikely. Uh, anyway, that's just to give you some idea of how these, uh, what they call text-critical uh, studies, how, how that is done uh, on the suttas and also on other texts. So, so this, it is possible that this is, tr this is the right reading. It's also possible that the other one is the right one. It's hard to really make, come to any final conclusion. And here they have talk on the higher dhamma. The higher dhamma here is the abhidhamma. Right? The abhidhamma uh, meaning in uh, uh, in, usually in Buddhism, the Abhidhamma means like the, you know, the seven books of the Abhidhamma, the third pitaka, that's usually what it means. But here it doesn't mean that because that third pitaka, Abhidhamma, didn't exist yet at this particular point. And the most usual understanding of this is that it actually just means with reference to the Dhamma. So talk about the Dhamma, basically. Talk with reference to the Dhamma. And they question each other. This is one of those important things in the 
uh, suttas, one of the kind of basic things that again lead to understanding of the Dhamma is the idea of having discussions about the Dhamma. It's often called Dhamma Sakacha, where you discuss these issues. Or here it's called Dhamma Kata. Kata means talking about the Dhamma, but it's also implied discussion in this. This is one of those basic things that, that carry along the path, listening to the Dhamma, but also discussing it. Or discussion often just means asking questions, right? And not being just a, a passive, uh, you know, someone who passively takes in the suttas, but actually ask questions about that. There is a danger there. If you, you, know, if you are too passive in your uh, engagement with the Dhamma, then often you sit there and you listen. But because of that passivity, often you don't learn as much as if you engage more actively. If you ask questions, if you kind of actively engage, often you learn much more because it makes you think when you actively engage with these things. So I always recommend you to, if you can, to ask questions and to engage a bit more because that actually usually helps the learning process. So that is what you are, what you are seeing here. So they are then talking about this. They're answering without foundering because they have a profound and understanding of the Dhamma. These are the Aryans again, no doubt, that he's talking about. And that's why you know the Dhamma directly from the heart, right? And sometimes you feel that. Sometimes you feel that people talk from the heart. And there's some profundity about that Dhamma when people talk from the heart. It's like you, you can feel that there's some truth to this. There's something very powerful going on. It's not often that you hear that, but sometimes you hear people who, wow, this is really, there's something going on here. Which is, which is unusual, which you normally don't hear from most people. Uh, people, it, it kind of comes out of them. The Dhamma sort of streams out, right? Uh, it's like they are the Dhamma almost. They have kind of embodied, um, embodied the Dhamma teachings. Uh, and what a powerful thing that is. And this is one of the reasons that I have to admit that I was attracted to Ajahn Brahm's teachings, first of all. Uh, because when I heard his teaching, I felt, well, this is, this is not coming from, this is not kind of knowledge. This is not, he's not reading from a book, uh, is kind of just coming out of him, right? And uh, you, you hear some of those talks, you know, when he talks at the monastery about meditation and things, uh, and he's been doing this for a long time now. There's something very powerful about that, something very real, real to a degree which is very hard to often find in the world. Uh. So that, anyway, that's, uh, that I think is part of what is going on here. Sorry, I, 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 <laughs> I let you wait for a long time. I, do you still have a question? or uh, Yes? The, the, say again. The, you read that passage. As yeah. The wood is lovely, etc. Did I? Yeah. And does, the, does it actually yeah. say that in the, the passage? I, I, okay, the passage, it says that now we ask the Mahamogulana, friend Mahamogulana, the Gosinga Sala wood, Sala tree wood is delightful, etc. Huh? Yeah. Well, it has three dots. Yeah. In the text, it's elided because it's the same. Every, every um, passage, is, for every person, it's the same thing here. Huh? So they have just elided some of the text, not to make it so repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I think it probably is so even in the original, in the actual Pali as well. Very often it is elided, and they have a little, a little word in Pali called payala, which actually means etc. in Pali. So you have etc. in Pali as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When it's said repeatedly here that the wood is delightful, yeah. that, does it seem to 
I mean, people who are at least attracted to practice that when this word delightful is there because of the presence of so many great arahants, yeah. it's not just a, the, a delightful king's park, that maybe the environment is, is quite powerful. Well, yes, I mean, I, mean, I think... Sometimes when I yeah. a, a, a supposedly well-practiced monk, mm. I, I do feel that the, the, the. the whole environment is very, very quiet. Sure, yeah. Well, the word delight is very multifaceted, right? Uh, you can delight in many different things. You can delight in sensual pleasures. You can delight in so many different things. Uh, so it's important here to understand it's the right kind of delight. It's delight in nature, right? Delight in natural phenomena. It probably is very, very quiet, uh, but it is a, l the right kind of delight. Uh, and this is what you find also with the Buddha, in the, you know, when the Buddha, before his awakening here, uh, and this is kind of the nice thing about the Buddha. Before his awakening, he decides to give up all the ascetic practices. And then after, not ascetic, but the self-tormenting, the torturing practices, a much more accurate way of putting it, than ascetic practices, he decides to give up torturing himself. And then where does he go? He goes to a delightful grove, right? With smooth banks, with a clear flowing river nearby, and a beautiful grove for practicing meditation, right? It all sounds almost sensual, with with a view, it doesn't say anything about the, doesn't say anything about a view, but uh, it is in the forest. It prob probably isn't much of a, that much of a view. But the point is that, the, and this is kind of the point here, is that you know he is now discovered the middle way. So you know a nice place which is comfortable and has all the facilities that he requires is what this actually means. The river is there for bathing. There's a village nearby for arms, right? But it's quiet enough to practice, and it is delightful. And one of the things that you find throughout the suttas is precisely this delight in nature throughout the suttas. And I think the idea there is that nature in itself already is kind of, it's already moving you in the right direction. It's a type of, it is, there's some aspect of sensuality there because you're taking these things through your eyes, of course, but it's a kind of a sensuality. Maybe sensuality is probably far too strong a word, but it's a type of sensual input which uh, leads towards peace and leads towards tranquility and takes in the right way. Uh, so that is what you're delighting in there. So you have to, yeah, you have to, these words are ambivalent in English, they're also ambivalent in Pali. They can mean delighting in the wrong way and delighting in the right way. Uh, I think rati is the word in Pali here, I think, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh. Okay. Uh, so. Sorry? Somebody have a question? Oh, yeah, yes, Wayne? Yeah. Even though he was foremost in psychic powers and abilities, yeah. he, he also helped teach the students after Venosari Putta yeah. to realize that he must have been very good at discussion and yeah. teaching and all that kind of side of it as well, yeah. which would correspond to this kind of translation. From exactly. Chinese, yeah. So. yeah. I would agree with you. I think it's too simple just to equate them with the most obvious quality. I, I, I would agree with that. And we see that next one. Next one is Venerable Sariputta. And it's the same thing. He's not actually, he doesn't praise wisdom. He praises meditation practice. Uh, it's a similar kind of thing here. So, yeah. So, I, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So, when this was said, the Venerable Maha Moggallana addressed the Venerable Sariputta thus. Friend Sariputta, we have all spoken according to our own inspiration. Now we ask the Venerable Sariputta. Friend Sariputta, the Gosinga Sala tree wood is delightful. 
the night is moonlit, the sala trees are all in blossom, the heavenly scents seem to be floating in the air. What kind of monk, friend Sariputta, could illuminate this Gusinga sala tree wood? So now we're coming really, we're going up the hierarchy, right? The kind of more and more important monks. Now it's Venerable Sariputta, who is next, who is next in wisdom only to the Buddha himself. Here, friend Mogalana, a bhikkhu wields mastery over his mind. He does not let the mind will mastery over him. In the morning he abides in whatever abiding or attainment he wants to abide in during the morning. At midday he abides in whatever abiding or attainment he wants to abide in at midday. And in the evening he abides in whatever abiding or attainment he wants to abide in during the evening. Suppose a king or king's minister had a chest full of variously colored garments. In the morning he could put on whatever pair of garments he wanted to put on in the morning. At midday he could put on whatever pair of garments he wanted to put on at midday. In the evening he could put on whatever pair of garments he wanted to put on in the evening. So too, a bhikkhu wields mastery over his mind. He does not let the mind will mastery over him. And then the whole thing is repeated. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. So uh, uh, this wielding mastery over the mind means basically uh, attaining any kind of samadhi state you like, right? Any kind of samadhi, whatever jhana, immaterial attainment, full cessation of everything, or you have these other types of samadhis, the animita samadhi, the signless, markless, signless samadhi, all of these things. You are able at any time to attain these things. And this is one of those qualities that is mentioned in the suttas as being something you practice towards, right? Having full mastery over this samadhi practice. So whenever you come in here to meditate, you know, whatever it is, you can enter whatever peace you want, right? And often it isn't like that, right? Often you, some days it works well, other days it doesn't. But if you have mastery over the mind, it all, you always have that ability to uh, attain these things. And of course, it only really works when you, are, when you attain full awakening. You abandon all the defilements because it is the defilements, the hindrances, uh, that block you from actually attaining uh, these things in the first place. And uh, the sutta speak of you know, the ability to attain whatever samadhi you like at whatever time you like, to come out when you want, uh, to be, and to be skilled in the samadhis in various types of ways. And of course, one of the things that is interesting here, and this, you know, from what Wayne was just saying, uh, is that usually uh, Venerable Sariputta, he is famous for his wisdom, right? Uh, he is the wisest person next to the Buddha. So again, uh, you see here this connection between wisdom uh, before it was Vipassana and Samatha, now is the connection between wisdom and uh, states of Samadhi, states of Jhana, etc., etc. These things always go together, and here also they go together. The wisest person is precisely the one who is able to attain these deep states of Samadhi. So uh, again, because you know wisdom here means... Und- Basically, wisdom means understanding the mind, right? Understanding how you work, having an insight into how these things function. Because that is really having wisdom into who you are as a person, mind, body, etc. Because that is what wisdom is. That is what enables you then to go into samadhi as well. So these things go together here.
Yes. Yeah. About about uh, being able to achieve jhanas in different ways and whatever you are, but yeah. isn't also in a more broad way just about being versatile in your practice, knowing yeah. what is proper given the conditions where you are? Isn't it also the message? Because all the other monks, they 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 try to frame yeah. under their own strengths, but then the higher you go, as you're saying, you're going yeah. the yeah. next one is Buddha himself. Yeah, yeah. And then you come with this a very versatile message, right? Like just like yeah. if, if if it's cold, you wear something to warm you. If it's if it's not cold, you wear yeah. something that's light. That's what he's saying. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably something to that. You have versatility because there are certain things that are appropriate at certain times, right? I mean, sometimes you 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 know you 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 have certain duties that you have to fulfill, or certain teachings you have to give, or whatever, and then you know the right attainment to be able to actually. Optimize that sort of thing, you know. If you go into Niroda Samapati, the fun, you know, ending of all things, uh, and you stay in there for seven days, you might miss a few appointments on the way, right? Uh, so, so that is part of it, right? And you don't want to be so peaceful that you can't talk, right? Uh, it become like a. So, yeah, so I think that is very, very true as well. You have versatility and you know the right attainment for the right time and, and all these kind of things. Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, time is going fast, so uh, let us come uh, now. We can move towards the uh, towards the end of this sutta. Uh, then the venerable Sariputta addressed those venerable ones thus: "Friends, we have all spoken according to our own inspiration. Let us go to the Blessed One and report this matter to him. As the Blessed One answers, so let us remember it." Yes, friend, they replied. Then those venerable ones went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, they sat down at one side. And the venerable Sariputta said to the Blessed One. And now, basically, I'm not, not going to read this because it's going to take too long, but basically he just repeats everything that has, that has happened to the Buddha. And uh, when he does, does so, the Buddha says... Uh, he replies in each case, he says, good, good, Sariputta, Ananda, uh, you know, Ananda and then Revata, whatever, speaking rightly, should speak just as he did, because Ananda has learned much, he remembers what he has learned, etc., etc. So he basically says that it is good that you have spoken in this way, because uh, basically, you know, they have these qualities, they know what they are, and so they have spoken according to their own understanding, basically. That's what the Buddha says to each one of them. Um, and then, come, coming to the very end of the sutta, um, uh, Venerable uh, Sariputta says, uh, When this was said, the Venerable Sariputta asked the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, which of us has spoken well? Right? Which, which ones of us have, have, have said, the, you know, said, said something useful and good? And the Buddha replies, perhaps not very surprisingly, you have all spoken well, Sariputta, each in his own way. 
right? Uh, so there's many ways in which you can illuminate uh, the uh, sala tree wood. Uh, the many, there's many, all of these things kind of come back to the same thing. They come back to wisdom. They come back to understanding. They come back to meditation ability. But there are different angles, right, on the same thing, basically. It's possible to talk about these things in many different ways. But hear, hear also from me, what kind of monk could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood? Hear, Sariputta, when a monk has returned from his arms round after his meal, he sits down, folds his legs crosswise, sets his body erect, and establishing mindfulness in front of him, he resolves... I shall not break the sitting position until, through not clinging, my mind is liberated from the taints. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. <laughs> so that is the Buddha's reply, right? And, uh, and you can see here there's almost like a subtle shift in what's happening. Most of the monks here, they have talked about almost like attainments, right? The divine eye, the deep attainments of samadhi, uh, 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 etc., etc. They have talked about kind of uh, things that have been attained by these, uh, by themselves or possibly by others. But the Buddha, instead of looking at qualities that you have attained or you have achieved, the Buddha changes the focus from the result of the path to the actual practice of the path itself, it's a subtle change, but it's, kind of, it's nice, right? Because in the end, all of us, we need to focus on the practice. And if we are practicing rightly in a good way, that means that we are, kind of, we are doing what is right. If you focus too much on the results, you're not going to get anywhere. You have to focus on what I need to do now. And so the Buddha makes his shift from the results and brings it back down to what we need to do. There's a very powerful message there, because all practice is really like that. People often worry too much about the results. They say, oh, when would I get to jhana? You know, I've been doing this for, you know, <laughs> I don't know how many years, 20 years or whatever. I still haven't got any deep samadhi, right? And it's, it's that worry about the results which is the problem. Instead of worrying about the result, we need to just focus on the conditions that will eventually lead to the results. We have to enjoy doing the conditions, enjoy being kind, enjoy being generous, enjoy just sitting there peacefully, right? And if you enjoy those things, then the results will come. But if you think too much about the marvelous samadhi you might attain, then it's much more difficult to enjoy what you're doing now because your mind is already on something else which you really want, right? Because you crave for that, you can't enjoy what you have. So enjoy what you have. This is so important. Focus on that. Then you will move towards something which is actually is worthwhile, would happen by itself. Otherwise we destroy what we're doing now. So that shift, I think, is very powerful and very significant, the shift away from result. But shifting and, of course, looking at the actual practice itself. Of course, the kind of practice the Buddha has in mind here is not the kind of practice you would recommend to, to the, the, the vast majority of people because... Um, it is not going not gonna to give results, basically. And to understand what the Buddha is saying here, you need to uh, look at the uh, introductory phrase here. He says, When a bhikkhu has returned from his arms round after his meal, he sits down, folds his legs crosswise, sets his body erect, and establishing mindfulness in front, front of him, he resolves. Now that initial part here 
is important. Without that initial part, the rest at the bottom doesn't really, doesn't really, uh, it, it's hard to, you know, without that initial part, the resolve becomes pointless. So the point here is that he is able to establish mindfulness, right? In other words, it refers to somebody who is already practicing very well. It doesn't refer to just anybody. It says here, establishing mindfulness in front of you. Well, establishing mindfulness in front of you is not something you can just do. You can't just say, I will be mindful. Mindfulness itself happens because of cause and conditions. This is just so important, right? People say, oh yeah, I must, I must be mindful. I'm not mindful enough. Well, you can't really control that. You can't just say, I will be more mindful. You have to put in place the cause and conditions. And those cause and conditions are, again, coming back to what I said before, the virtue, the kindness, all the goodness you do during your life. That is the causes and the conditions for mindfulness to be possible. Because if you have those things, you will feel good. You will feel happy about yourself. Because you're happy about yourself, your mind will naturally come into the present moment and mindfulness is there. This is how it works. So establishing mindfulness, that is kind of 90% of the path, right? And if you are able to establish mindfulness, it means that samadhi will happen. Mindfulness comes and samadhi comes as a function of that mindfulness. It's always the same thing on the path. Mindfulness then samadhi, one thing after the other. These are not contrasting things, either mindfulness or samadhi. They are phenomena that you know, condition each other, one coming after the other. So once you have mindfulness, because you are in the present moment already, because you already have established a sense of joy in the present moment, happiness about who you are, etc., then when you uh, meditate, it flows smoothly. You don't have to worry. There's no thinking. There's no maybe tiny bit of thinking, very little, right? There's not going into the future, going into the past. There's no craving. There's no sloth and torpor. There's no uh, anger or ill will. And there's not, not all this desire stuff which keeps us messing, messing us around all the time. You are here. You're present. You're feeling peaceful already. That is the kind of person who is then able to move on and to make this kind of resolve. If you haven't got that, then there's no point in even, you know, it's impossible to make this kind of resolve. It's completely pointless. It's complete madness, in fact, to make this kind of resolve. Uh, and if you aren't mad already, you will become so quickly if you try, <laughs> if you try, this, sort of, try this sort of thing here. Yeah. I know, as Brahm said, apparently, when he was young, he was, when, while he was still at university, he said that he, he did that. He thought, yeah, you know, I've read about the, in the suttas that you're supposed to sit down and resolve and just you know, sit down until you, you're fully enlightened. And I think he lasted for half an hour gritting his teeth, you know, because you're not really used to sitting cross-legged, right? So it's all very painful and very bad. So that is, that is, the, that is the wrong way. So, and then, of course, once all of those things are in place, you have the samadhi, you have the mindfulness, then you can say, I shall not break the sitting posture. It probably means that you're already an area as well. You're already a stream entry, right? That's probably what it means as well. So you already understand the Dhamma. Then you can say this, I shall not break this posture until I reach full awakening. Yeah. Right? The, the, the really determined, determined monk, it says here, yeah. That kind of monk could illuminate this Gosinga Sala tree wood. Does that make sense? Yes, sir.
for this last uh, heroic uh, heap? Yeah. <laughs> probably, probably it is. Probably it is about understanding that the time has come and you feel that you are ready for making the breakthrough, the, all the conditions are right, and then when you know that the time is sort of right, then you go for it. Yeah, I would say that's a good, good way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, that is good. Uh, yes, John. You, you have to use the microphone, so you have to wait. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just just to point on the stream winner, you're saying the stream winner has to would would, would be uh, reached to reach these qualities, but in the suttas there yeah. seems to be different types of stream winners. There were some who were married, and uh, <laughs> so they would not have, would they have reached yeah. they would have not reached that area. It says here it says a bhikkhu, right? But you said the word stream winner. I, I, well, I, I did, uh, but it, I, I didn't actually want to. T I didn't want to mention that because it, I, I thought you know maybe it's not necessary. But actually, it says here that a bhikkhu resolves this, right? That's what it says in the sutta. And uh, the reason for that could be precisely that if you live a married life, it's not going to be very conducive to full awakening. You might be able to become a stream winner. You might be able to go a bit further if you practice really well. Huh? But uh, full awakening for you know for a householder. It can happen, but it usually happens on your deathbed, because on your deathbed you're letting go of everything, and that's when arahantship can happen for a householder. And once you become, once you become an arahant anyway, you're no longer a householder. You've given all that up. Men mentally, you're no longer a householder, right? You've given up all that. Um, uh, you can't really store things up, as it says in the suttas, as you did previously. Yeah. So, sorry, that wasn't what I really meant. What I meant was, you said uh, those signs of the bhikkhu yeah. Could, would be uh, an area, a stream winner, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. But in the time of the Buddhas, there are already stream winners who were married yeah. and, and lived a lay life. Yeah. So, would they have? Could they do that? You would have to have two two factors. You had to be bhikkhu, and you had to be a stream winner. Stream stream winner. Yeah. But it, but in the time of the Buddha, there were stream winners who were lay people. Yes, that's true, but they are excluded from this. That's what I say, because you, you are I, maybe not 100% excluded, but I would say largely excluded, because if you still live lay life, it is very unlikely you will have the, even the possibility to do this kind of thing, you know? So maybe not, maybe I'm being a little bit uh, over the top. Maybe, maybe it is possible, and then you become a monk afterwards, you know, when, once you attain that, it, it, is it is conceivable. But I think usually this is a reference to, to, to monastics, probably, yeah. You know, you see in the suttas, you talk about, uh, you know, the highest type of uh, wisdom, for example, for the, uh, you know, for the monastics, com and compare that to the lay people. Now, the highest type of wisdom for the lay people is always the anagami, uh, whereas for the monastics, it's the arahant, right? Uh, because once you're an arahant, you are a monastic, but almost, you know, but yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else? Uh, yes. Uh, Drew, yeah. Thanks, Ajahn. Uh, just a quick one. What, what was the name of that um, sutta that you mentioned before about uh, uh, the virtue sutta? It's a, a Salayaka sutta, oh. Majjhima 41. Uh. Okay. It's a, it's a standard set of uh, about talking about virtue, and it is found many, many places in the suttas, but that is one where it is very, uh, you know, very obvious one. Uh. I better yeah. read up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Have a look at that one. Yeah, Majjhima 41. Yeah. Uh. Bhante, yes, okay, over there, yeah. Just uh, yeah. in line with what you said, uh, just to put things in context, this yeah. sutta is, is in a very specific vaga, very clearly uh, 
um, depicting teachings from the Buddha to the Bhikkhu Sangha, inspiring them into reaching the yeah. goal. So yeah. I think yeah. that your point is quite correct. Yeah, you, you might have stream interest, interest winners that who are not uh, Bhikkhus, but mm. these specific instruction. Sure. Yeah, I would. I would tend to agree with you. It seems to be an instruction to the monks, basically, huh? and presumably also the nuns. I mean, would be in a similar kind of position, huh? but uh, it's not the kind of teaching that you would normally give to lay people. Huh? That's not usually not the way the way things work in the sutta. So, yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Everybody else happy? Huh? Yeah. Okay. So the final sentence of the sutta. This is what the Blessed One said, and those Venerable Ones were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so let's pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs>